0: All right, well, most of you know you've already been told a few times or at least a few times that this is my favorite series of the year. Um, and in case you're wondering, I already have a list for next year, <clears throat> and I've already been planting a bug in Chris's ear for a different way of doing our um, Saint series next year. Um, but I'm not going to give you any spoilers, so you'll have to stick around like for a whole nother year to figure out what Chris comes up with with my help of course okay (laughs) he didn't use any of my saints this year by the way guys none of them he didn't use a single one of them so um so I'm a lover of history but probably more than history I love watching and looking at the patterns that mankind falls into and how we keep repeating them over and over and over again For some people, that can become scary to look at those patterns and face the futility of human endurance. But for me, it seems like we get to recognize the ridiculous capacity for humans to do the same dumb things over and over again. But only in that can we truly recognize the grace and the patience of God. His love for creation is all over the patterns in history, despite the fact that we as human beings seem to do everything that we can to bring death and destruction to his creation. Well, this year, as Chris was wrestling over who we were going to talk about this November, I kept reminding him of something that God has, keeps taking us back to over and over this year in many different ways, and that's this idea of legacy. Legacy. So for this morning, I looked up the definition of legacy, and among the definitions, there was this little blurb that I think bears weight on our discussion this morning. It said, anything handed down from the past, as from an ancestor or a predecessor, an inheritance. Now, we've spent the last two weeks diving into the two different men's lives from George Mueller, who, upon finding Christ, made it his life's goal to show others just how simple a life lived in faith could be. He showed us the power of prayer for our everyday needs and the legacy that could be built upon the simple tenet that God takes care of his people and their needs when, they're advanced, when they are simply bent on advancing his kingdom. Mueller's heart was just to show people that he was responsible for Just what God could do with a simple faith that took God at his word. And then last week, Chris nerded out teaching us about the life of Michael Faraday. And through the eyes of this brilliant scientist, we got to see some of the greatest discoveries of the 19th century. But we also learned about a man whose unwavering faith in God saw science and the universe that it studied as just another tool that could be used to draw others to their savior. And as we do every year during this series, we've read through the beginning of Hebrews 12. And then last week, Chris took us into Hebrews 11 and he looked at the author's own little saint series, which is where I want to start this morning by rereading this passage before we actually jump into our saint for this morning. Now, faith is the confidence in what we hope for, an assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command, so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, Abel still speaks, even though he is dead. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By his faith, He condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he didn't know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful, who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they're looking for a country of their own. If they'd been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had the opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Now, I don't know if you've noticed the recurring word that seems to dominate the lives of both George Mueller and Michael Faraday. But if you missed it, it's also the predominant word in this passage. And if it's not jumping out at you yet, I'll give you a little hint. The word is faith. Mueller built an organization to help orphans, and it still exists today. He built it from literally nothing but faith. And Faraday, in an era that was abandoning faith in every educational discipline, found that a starting point of faith allowed him to find God in everything he studied, from chemistry to electromagnetism to physics to the Bible. And this one word, faith, might possibly be one of the best ways to describe our saint for this week. Now, I'm not going to actually tell you who we're studying just yet. I'm just going to take you on a bit of a journey through the life of another great man of faith. But he isn't our saint, but his life is greatly impacted by our saint. We're going to be in 1 Kings 19 this morning, but I want to give you just a little bit of backstory first. After the nation of Israel was broken into two kingdoms, there were a slew of really bad kings. They continually led the people of God into idolatry and other really bad practices that pushed Israel away from God. And this created an environment that required the rise of the prophets. Their job was to try to point the people back toward God, primarily by pointing out all of the things that the people were doing to damage their relationship with God. Now, as you can imagine, this meant that they usually weren't very well liked because none of us like to have our sins pointed out to us and the consequences brought to our attention. Elijah was one of these prophets. Now, most of us know the story of Elijah, but just imagine with me the scrunchy old man, probably a little bit grumpy. I always picture him kind of like a Carl from up, like there's something nice underneath there, but he's kind of not very nice on the outside. During Elijah's life, the king and queen of Israel, Ahab and Jezebel, and I picture them like dressed in the finest clothing of the day, and they were surrounded by all the finest things and the pomp and the circumstance that was the antithesis of the scrunchy old man, Elijah. Of course, they didn't really like him at all because he never seemed to have anything nice to say about them. At one point, Elijah announced a massive drought on the land of Israel, and it lasted for about three years. This didn't help his reputation with the king and queen, and probably not with the people of Israel either, because they were probably connected to Ahab and Jezebel's fake news cycle, and it probably blamed Elijah for the drought. But while everyone else was struggling, God provided for Elijah through some incredible miracles. Birds ubered his food, and he had a never-ending supply of oil and flour with a widow that created a whole, like, all-you-can-eat biscuit buffet. But at the end of this drought, God told Elijah to go back to King Ahab and let him know that it was going to rain soon. Now, it seems like God wanted Ahab to know that the drought wasn't a coincidence, and it wasn't a naturally occurring event. But it was rather that God declared when the rain would fall and when it would dry up. Well, Elijah arrives with the good news that it's going to rain. But instead, the king accuses him of being a troublemaker, causing all of Israel's woes. Well, this seemed to upset Elijah just a little bit. And so he decides to issue a challenge to King Ahab and to all of Israel. Everyone's going to assemble on a mountain. And there, Ahab's prophets would build an altar to their god. While Elijah would build an altar to God, the God of Israel. They would each lay a bowl on their respected altars, and whichever God responded by setting fire to their sacrifice will be proclaimed the true God. So it's an otherwise ordinary sacrifice with a single caveat that no one's going to actually light a fire. The true God would have to do that part. Now, I think we all know this part of the story. Ahab's prophets of Baal try to call down fire from heaven with Elijah heckling them while nothing happened. And then with dramatic flair, Elijah steps up to his altar and decides to drench it with water. But then he prays. And in response to this prayer, fire immediately fell from heaven. And it burnt up the whole thing. The bull, the wood, the altar, and even the water. The people freaked out. Elijah had all the prophets of Baal put to death, and then Ahab gets on his chariot to fly back to his pa- to his palace for reinforcements. But Elijah actually beats Ahab to the palace, running on foot, and when they get there, it started to storm. Now, this is where things get just a little bit more weird, because Queen Jezebel, all of her prophets having just been killed, swears that she is going to kill Elijah in the same way. And suddenly this man of God who's just called fire from heaven and beat a chariot in a race, gets scared. So I picture Jezebel was probably pretty scary. (laughs) So Elijah runs. I mean, who wouldn't run when the queen says she's going to kill you? But he runs. He runs until he can't run anymore. And when he runs out of gas, he collapses under a tree and he begs God to let him die. He falls asleep. He's awakened a short time later by an angel that's tapping him on the shoulder, telling him to eat. He eats, and then he immediately falls asleep again. Then he's wakened again by the same angel who tells him to eat more. But before I finish this part of the story, I want to emphasize something that I think is really important here. Sleep and nutrition are incredibly important for your spiritual, mental, and emotional health. In his lowest moment, God met Elijah with nothing more profound than a nap and some food. This is not a small thing. Anyway, when Elijah wakes up again, the angel tells him he has to go on a long journey to a mountain that's far away. Elijah obeys. He makes it to the mountain, collapses in a cave, and tries to go back to sleep. And this is where we're going to begin to eavesdrop on the conversation that Elijah and God have. We're going to pick up our story right here in 1 Kings 19. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied. I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me, too. The Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord's about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart, and it shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord wasn't in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord wasn't in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord wasn't in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and he stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me, too. The Lord said to him, go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Haziel, king of Aram. Also, anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel, Meloha, to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escape the sword of Haziel. And Elisha will put to death any who escape the sword of Jehu. Now, Chris and I arranged for me to preach this message several weeks ago, and he told you he volunteered me, but really, he's offered to do this multiple times, and I told him no, <laughs> because I actually wanted to preach this message. For one reason, this morning's message has been rolling around inside of me for several months. It was mostly vague ideas and a deep frustration with the way things are in our culture right now. So when Chris decided that this was the saint he was going to do this year, I immediately knew that this was where God wanted all of those thoughts to go. Now, I have to say that Chris had a really hard time letting me do this this morning. Like I said, he's asked multiple times to do this um, because he really wanted to nerd out with you guys over the chiastic structure of the passage this morning. And if you don't remember, he can tell you some other time about chiastic structure, but it's like this Jewish poetry thing and it's. Really cool. Anyway, but I'm not my husband. So, you have to listen to me instead of Hebrew chiastic poetry. But before we go any further, I want to read one more verse to you. And then, I promise, I'll tell you who this morning's saint is. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and whose mouths have not kissed him. Our saint this morning isn't Elijah. Our saint is these 7,000 nameless people whose whose knees never bowed to Baal. Now, if Chris were up here this morning, he would tell you all about how in the original Hebrew writing style, the climax, the real point of this whole passage was not the fact that God controlled all of nature in the earthquake and the wind and the fire. The main point wasn't even that God preferred to use the still, small voice rather than the big, flashy things. But the point of this whole passage, if we read it the way that any Israelite would have read it, is found in the verse that we just read. The entire point of the whole thing that God was trying to make to Elijah was that he was not alone. In his stress and fatigue, Elijah had grown to believe that he was alone. But there were 7,000 more. They were committed believers and they were just as passionate, just as devoted. And just as faithful to God as Elijah was. That was the point of the fancy Jewish chiastic structure of the passage. But since I'm not Chris Heintzelman, we're not going to go any deeper into any of the nerd work. But instead, I'm going to tell you the story the way I see it. Now, Elijah was this big, bad, maybe not big and bad, but he was this grumpy old man. And he announced a drought and it happened. It actually happened. For three years, there was no rain. Then he calls down fire from heaven, and it happened. He clears the land of the false prophets. He prays down rain from heaven to end the drought, and it rains. He outran a chariot. He became a lightning rod for the wrath of the evil king and queen. There was potentially no full human who ever did more. But even he finally ran out of strength. He got lonely and depressed. He was overcome with fear and anxiety. Elijah hit a point where he was the one who needed God to show up for him. And boy, did God show up. And when he did, he gave him exactly what he needed. And it wasn't another flashy miracle. It was simply a reminder that he wasn't alone. God told Elijah, who was going to rule the surrounding nations after he's gone, and he tells Elijah to go find Elisha. He says, the Lord said to him, go back the way you came and go to the desert of D- Damascus. When you get there, anoint Haziel, king of Aram. Anoint Jehu, son of Kim- Nimshi, king over Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat from Abel Maloha, to succeed you as prophet. And just in case Elijah had any doubts that the mission of God would only last until those three men were gone, God dropped the main point on Elijah. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. God reminded Elijah that everything didn't rest on his shoulders. There was a plan beyond Elijah for the immediate future. And there were at least 7,000 faithful who were carrying Elijah's legacy into the future. And while Elijah was out doing his job, making Ahab and Jezebel really angry, he began to imagine that the story was simply all about him. But there were these 7,000 other people, and they were living their lives, faithfully serving the one true God of Israel, day in and day out. They were doing their jobs each and every day. They were loving their spouses and raising their children. They were loving their neighbors, but mostly they were resisting the pressures of the culture while living their lives in such a way that people were seeing God at work all around them, even if they didn't realize it. Now, just as we've seen in the past two weeks in the lives of George Mueller and Michael Faraday, the lives of these 7,000 people were speaking to multitudes of people. They were leaving a legacy for those who would come after them. These people weren't announcing droughts or calling fire from heaven They were simply getting up every morning. They were baking bread and planting and harvesting crops. They were tending flocks of animals. They were building houses and furniture. They were raising their children to know and see God all around them. They were telling their neighbors about the ways that God was providing them despite the drought. They were speaking of the goodness and the grace of God in the midst of life's greatest joys and sorrows. They were messing up. And they were repenting. They were apologizing and they were learning each day what it meant to live faithfully. They were the ones who were continuing to build the kingdom of God's people. While Elijah was drawing the ire of the king and queen who were determined to lead God's people away from the God who had led them out of slavery into the land that had been promised to Abraham so many years before, they were simply busy building a legacy and inheritance of God's story that we still get to enjoy today. These were the faithful ones, the quiet faithful ones, the ones that didn't need a stage. They just simply needed a life, and they lived it for God. Now, this year, the women here at Open Table have read and learned a lot about what it means to find our people and to build community, what it might look like to orient our lives around this concept of living in fidelity to both God and the community that he's placed us in. We've asked one another and God what it looks like to live together, knowing that we'll hurt one another, but also knowing that we will live lives that will be infinitely richer. We can celebrate and cry together. We'll care for one another and we'll disagree with one another. We've been wrestling with the knowledge that because we all love Jesus, we can also find ways through the hurt that life throws at us, and that in that place, we're going to find a deeper sense of love for not only God, but also for those who've hurt us. We've read stories together about lives that are deeply intertwined, and we've seen how when we're looking for God, he shows up in even the messiest of stories. We've found joy and peace in sharing our own stories and in making meals together and in praying for one another. We're learning more and more how to show up because that is what our faith in God is asking of us. If you've been at any of the ladies' events this year, then you've already heard me talk about some of this. But this morning, I'm going to share with everyone. There's a host of people who invested in my story In fact, this morning as we sang Blessed Assurance, I could hear the voice of my grandmother singing Blessed Assurance because that was her favorite hymn. And I thought, what a joy for her to hear her great-grandchildren singing a song speaking of God's love and His grace and faithfulness to us. The story still carries on. There are people who taught me from a really young age that God loves me. Others taught me the importance of a deep love for learning. There are those who gave me a desire to learn about the wonders of the world around me. And people who instilled in me a love for history. They showed me how to love my husband and my children well. They showed me the value of a heart that was willing to repent and a heart that's willing to forgive. They've taught me to have faith in the impossible, to find grace in the hard places, and of the wisdom that is always found in the pages of the Bible. There are those who taught me Bible stories over and over again. And there are those who sat with me as I began to find God in my own story, and not just the stories that I read. There are so many who have continually pointed me to Him, most of you don't know their names. They're simply some of the 7,000, and in the greater annals of history, they don't really have name, they don't really have names. But they're building into my life of faith. Earlier, we read in Hebrews 11 about some of the earliest stories in the Bible and the ways that those people lived lives of faith. But what I want to look at now is this little part. All those people were still living by faith when they died. They didn't receive the things they were promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. Each of the people mentioned in Hebrews 11 were just living their lives, trying to faithfully follow in the path that God had set before them. They got up and they did their jobs every day. They raised their families, but underneath it all, they trusted that what God had promised would happen. Abel was simply giving a sacrifice to God to show his gratitude. Enoch, just living a life that pleased God. Noah, he just built a boat. Abraham, now he was following a map that God never really showed him. But think about this. He never got to see the nation of Israel. He didn't get to walk the streets of Jerusalem. And he never got to look into the eyes of Jesus as a baby, knowing that that babe was the fulfillment of God's promise to bless all of mankind through him. And we know their names, but even though we can't name them by name, the 7,000, they were also living their ordinary lives, refusing to join the culture of the day that served a false god who promised good weather but couldn't seem to bring a drop of rain to a dry and parched land. Last week, Chris taught us about how Michael Faraday was able to, by faith, stand against all the cultural pressures of his day to worship the the Baal God of science. And in like fashion, these 7,000 ordinary believers stood apart from the culture. They never bowed to the God of the day. Instead, they trusted that God would care for them, even when the weather didn't cooperate. Each of these 7,000 were simply living their lives They were full lives, probably rich with dramas that make life worth living. All the while, they got to watch while God showed up in their stories. And they, no doubt, told those around them how they saw Him showing up. They were living a life with faith that God would promise and that He would fulfill. And even though we may not know all the details of each of their stories, God knew each story, He knew it intimately. And when Elijah dared to think that he was alone, God was ready to take roll call. I've got Sally over there. She's teaching elementary school, and she's faithful to me. Then there's Bill. He's a mechanic, and he loves me. I've got Sam. He's hoping to be mayor of his town, and he serves me with his whole heart. And then there's Havilah. She raises her children to worship me. God knew each and every one of their names and stories. To Elijah, they may have simply been 7,000, but God knew each of their names. So how do we respond to this? I don't know if you've figured out where I'm going yet, but here's the deal. I want to add one more saint to this set of 7,000. And that saint is you. The very first verse of Hebrews 12, the one that we come back to every November, says this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders us and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you won't grow weary and lose heart. The writer of Hebrews spent the entirety of Hebrews 11 talking about the saints of the Old Testament. And at one point, he even tells us he doesn't have time to include the countless others who've lived lives of faith. But guess what? They didn't get to be one of those people who lived lives of faith if they didn't actually do just that. They lived. They showed up. They made mistakes. They grew. They repented. They forgave. They laughed and cried. They raised children. They loved spouses. They found themselves brave and afraid. And they were real people just like you and me. Some of them called fire from heaven and some of them killed giants. Some defeated huge armies and some of them simply had babies. But they all lived lives of faith, believing that God, who showed up in their stories, was also going to show up in the stories of those who followed after them. Here's the crazy spoiler alert this morning, though. Hebrews 11 and 12 aren't about the cloud of witnesses. The author of Hebrews didn't tell us all about these awesome, faithful people for their sake. It wasn't meant to be a memorial. It was recorded for you and for me. He recorded all of this so that we could join that crowd of saints. We get the privilege that the God of the universe is inviting each and every one of us to jump in and live a life of faith that points others to Jesus. And I don't know about you, but I think that's pretty awesome. So this morning isn't about Elijah, and it's not even really about the 7,000 nameless faithful that God revealed to Elijah to comfort him in his de- depression. This morning is about you. As I said this morning when I began, God's been reinforcing this idea of legacy and inheritance in Chris's in my life for multiple, in multiple ways over the past several months. Earlier this year, Chris realized that he's older than Butch, his mentor, ever was. But he doesn't feel nearly mature enough to step into the role that Butch had. Butch was calm, in chaos. He could at times be unsure and worried about his role in teaching others about God and his word. But he could also be forceful and convicting at times. But one thing he was always sure of was God's love. And that was all that really mattered. I learned from Butch a quiet faithfulness, a voice of wisdom, and hugs that I still miss today. Butch was faithful. He was one of my 7,000. Chris doesn't feel big enough to fill those shoes, and yet God is calling him to that role. It's now his job to answer the hard questions, and not only call others to faithfulness, but to also demonstrate it he now gets to walk a path that he watched Butch walk before him. And it might look different, but the one thing that hasn't changed is that God is walking alongside him, full of love and grace and faithfulness. A few months ago, as I was praying for some friends of mine, God reminded me of my childhood church. And He reminded me of the adults that were there. (coughs) They were surrounding me and all the other kids in our church. These people, this 7,000, spent a lot of time and energy investing in all of us kids. They helped to shape us. They shaped me because they were always there. In most of my young God memories, they're the attendees, and I could no more separate their presence from my memory than I could God's. As time has gone on, I've felt God speaking that I am now one of those adults. And it's my job now to be one of those people investing in the people around me, pointing them to Jesus always. I'm one of the people that they will see in their mind's eyes when they remember the God of their youth. And what role will I play in their memory? The weight of it all can at times feel like Elijah in the cave crying out to God, I'm the only one. But then I remember this story and those words. There's 7,000 more who haven't bowed to the gods of the day. I'm not alone. There are always more. But my voice matters. And so does yours. We are the 7,000. My God's story, it matters. Your God's story, it matters. God is calling each of us to be part of that 7,000. His 7,000. Whether or not we like it, we are the crowd of witnesses to the next generation. We are their Hebrews 11. And ours are the stories that will be told by those who know us and who love us. So are we living lives that are speaking of impossible everyday faith? Are we telling stories of the places in our lives where God has shown up? Are we trusting God by building things that we're never ever going to see or experience? Are we living and modeling repentance and grace? Are we speaking life and encouragement to those around us? Are we standing bravely against the culture? Are we praying and asking God to show up in our stories and in the stories of those who come after us? Are we living in such a way that those around us want to join us in following Jesus? But mostly, are we building a church that's going to stand even when the gods of the day seek to pull it off of the foundation that is Jesus Christ? It can be easy for us to hide the hard and the painful parts of life. But if there's anything that I've learned from our Saint series this year, It's that only when we can learn to embrace the life that we're living and we become willing to share that life with others, that is when God shows up. When we seek Him, He is able to be found. He provides money for food and for orphanages. He inspires genius brains to create life-changing inventions, all the while deepening faith that He is the creator of the universe. And he shows up in the faith of everyday people who refuse to bow to the gods of the day. So the way that I would love for each of us to respond to this message is to take some time this week. Read the words of Hebrews 11 and 12. And then be crazy and genuinely ask God, what does it look like for me to join the great cloud of witnesses? What does it look like for me To be part of the 7,000 that haven't bowed to the gods of today. When the kids at OTCC look back on the church of their youth, what are they going to remember about me and my God story? But mostly, what does it look like for me to pass down a legacy and inheritance of faith? And then, go live that way.